Welcome everyone to another episode of the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. I'm Nancy Anderson and I'm joined by Executive Vice President at Red Havas US, Linda Descano. Hello, Linda. Hi, Nancy. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. So Linda, for this episode, we've organized a roundtable conversation around environmental, social, and corporate governance, better known by industry pros as ESG. So tell us a little bit more about that and who you have joining you for the conversation. Absolutely. So over the past two years, the three P's, by which I mean persistent pandemic, protest against systemic social injustice and inequity, and ever polarizing politics have really created a watershed moment for corporate brand and purpose, and by extension, how brands and companies are approaching and communicating about ESG, corporate social responsibility, and sustainability. So today we're going to explore the current landscape around all of these topics and whether it's time for a reset. And joining me for our conversation are Jeffrey Whitford, who is head of sustainability and social business innovation for the life science business of Merck KGAA Darmstadt, Germany, and Mike Terrell, who's editor of SRI Connect, which is a global network of companies, investors, advisors, and organizations that have a shared focus and interest in all things sustainability and ESG. Yeah, this is a great conversation for communicators at every level to tune in and come away with a clear understanding of the relationship between purpose, CSR, ESG, and sustainability, and the various ways that the S in ESG is being defined. And then later, we're going to welcome our friend and colleague, Amy Takis, Senior Vice President of Red Havas Health for the Red Questionnaire. So any new listeners can get caught up. The Red Questionnaire is where we ask the same questions to different guests to understand what inspires them, makes them tick, and what's grabbing their attention right now. So stay tuned for that. But first, Linda, I'm going to pass the mic to you to get this roundtable conversation underway. Thanks, Nancy. Today, we are exploring the current state of the ESG landscape and whether it's time for a reset. Joining me for our conversation is Jeffrey Whitford, Head of Sustainability and Social Business Innovation uh, for the Life Science Business of Merck KGAA Darmstadt, Germany, and Mike Terrell, Editor of SRI Connect, a global network of companies, organizations, investors, and advisors who are focused on sustainability and ESG. Mike, Jeffrey, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. So over the past three years, you know, we've seen just a watershed moment, you know, in the area of brand and corporate purpose, right? Driven by the pandemic that continues to persist, protest against systemic social injustice and inequity, and polarizing politics. I've put all of these topics, purpose, ESG, sustainability, corporate social responsibility in the forefront of conversations that brands are having with all of their stakeholders, from employees to investors to community partners. So against that backdrop, Mike, I'd like to start with you. Help us understand the relationship between all of these different aspects of a brand and their mission. What is the relationship between purpose, CSR, ESG, and sustainability? Are they the same? Are they different? 
Linda, thanks very much. A, a nice, easy one to start with. Um, you're right. They are, to a large degree, the same. They're all dealing with roughly the same area of the wider social responsibilities of a company, but there are nuances between them as well. And the frustrating thing is they're all slightly slippery concepts, and they're used in different ways by different people. Of purpose, CSR, ESG, and sustainability, the two that I think are most tangible are purpose and sustainability. Sustainability I like as a term because it is the overarching term that we all need to achieve as a society to ensure our survival, our ongoing um, prosperity. Um, but purpose is obviously one which accords most neatly with companies. Companies have two purposes. They have to make money to satisfy their shareholders, and they also have to deliver on other societal responsibilities, which I think can break down into um, governance. So they have to deliver within corporate governance controls. Environmental, they have to stay within environmental boundaries. Social, they have to satisfy the needs of multiple stakeholders. Economic, particularly at this time of COVID-19 recovery, they have to contribute to the requirements of a stable and growing economy. And then ethical, they mustn't, of course, breach any ethical or moral norms in the countries and regions within which they operate. So more complicated than ESG, financial, F, G, governance, environmental, <laughs> E, social, E, S, economic, E, ethical, E. It's a, it is complicated for companies. but I'm not a brand marketeer. I'm an investment analyst, so I don't want <laughs> six factors to look. Well, so I'm I'm, I'm glad you you raised that. Um, and in terms of, you know, the the investor perspective, with what I want to build on that in just a moment. But Jeffrey, I'm curious because you sit inside a global brand. You know, how has you know your approach or your worldview of these issues evolved in response to? you know, recent events and, and developments. Has it changed? And are you thinking of these six factors that Mike just took us through? Yeah, I, I think what's interesting, and I think what Mike said is absolutely true, is regardless of the nomenclature you use for practitioners, all of the things are always on our radar because we have to be thinking about all of them. So I, I don't necessarily know if there's been a change but I think what we've also had to realize is the need for simplification within the organization, because really the challenge is not how we understand it, but it's actually how our employee groups understand. It. How do the people who are ultimately making this all happen or need to live up to that purpose, to that ESG commitment, to that sustainability commitment, living it out? And I think that's where the challenge comes, because if you talk about sustainability, people automatically go to just environmental topics, which mm -hmm. means then they question, well, what are we doing on ethical topics? What are we doing in terms of world events and things that are happening? And I think that's where helping to uh, navigate that through with employees and be as clear as you can be about what's included in that umbrella becomes a really important piece to how you successfully achieve what you set out to do regardless of what mix of things are happening, but it becomes a very important piece. And I think at the end of the day, the simplification for the employee base is the most important thing that we can do to help them, you know, start to be on the journey with us. Well, and I think to build on, on what you're saying too, and I'm, I'm so glad you put the spotlight on employees because so, so often conversations and reporting around ESG and sustainability issues is designed for that external audience, right? 
be it investors, be it watchdog organizations. But I think what we've also seen over the past few years is employees sometimes are the first ones to stand up and say, wait a minute, you're saying X, you've pledged X, but you're doing Y and see a disconnect between words and actions from what they're experiencing inside, which can create an equally important source of risk and brand erosion if there isn't that consistency. So being sure employees understand tangibly what the company stands for and what they are doing is probably one of the most important first steps before going out publicly and talking about these issues. Absolutely. I think the ability to make sure that the lived experience matches what they're hearing or seeing in other places is really important because, and what we talk about is the moment that we lose trust in what we're doing is when this is all disintegrated. All of the work that we've put in over you know a decade plus goes away the second we are not true to and making sure that that standard of what we're talking about really is happening at a meaningful scale and that we could look around in our employees, I think, like you said, because, you know, ultimately, I think the role of the employee has now really, it shifted. And you talk about loyalty, maybe in a different way, right? There is this, you know, kind of, I would say commitment. I don't want to call them whistleblowers necessarily, mm-hmm. but to be more vocal and call things out that they, you know, that don't make sense to them, that they say, wait a minute, this doesn't line up. And, you know, from a value standpoint, I'm going to be bolder. I think there is more, uh, more of that behavior, which is great. That accountability is, is a good thing for organizations. I agree. Mike, I want to come back to you on the investor side. Uh, I've read a statistic that, you know, over the past year, topics around DE&I and climate and so forth have increased 500-fold in terms of earnings calls. You know, are you seeing a change in how the broader investor community is viewing ESG and your other three related factors as proxies for a company's financial performance? You know, it's always been a factor for the ESG SRI investment community, but is it now attracting greater interest as that these are business issues, not just fluffy reputational issues? Yeah, absolutely. The world has changed. It, it hardly needs me to say that, but but the world has changed fundamentally over two years in the sustainable investment space. The world has changed from steady, slow, solid growth over 18 years to suddenly everybody needs to do this and they need to do this now. The only word that I think I would take issue with, um, I suspect you didn't mean, is the word proxy, because I don't, I think actually investors are becoming much more sophisticated in the way they look at these issues. And they're not using companies' performance on social issues or environmental issues as a proxy for evidence of how their management is doing. It's a direct cost, revenue, liability driver. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yes, the investors are much more up to speed with this. Their clients are demanding it much more of them. Companies are talking to them much more openly and clearly about how these factors are affecting their business performance. And of course, once a company can help an investor establish a clear line of sight between a sustainability factor and one of the key value drivers of the business, then that information gets fed into capital markets very, very quickly. 
So we have seen the world change, both in terms of the volume of interest in this area, but also the sophistication with which investors are using the information that they receive. And are you finding investors as interested in these issues for B2B brands as well as B2C brands? I think they are absolutely, because they're investors typically across a universe of stocks. What's interesting is that they typically follow different issues for different companies. So self-evidently, if they're an investor in energy stocks, they're following the climate debate incredibly closely. If they're a consumer-facing brand, they might be following the diversity and equality debate closely. If they are investing in FMCG, they might be following the alternative proteins debate. If they're in the banking sector, they might be following social inclusion debates. So yes, they are following them equally across sectors, but they will look at different issues depending on the stock and sector that they're considering. And Jeffrey, are you seeing uh, more of your customers and other stakeholders ask more questions, want to understand more about what you are doing across the ESG spectrum? Is that becoming an, a, you know, not just a factor to do business and to be considered for certain opportunities? Yeah, before I would go maybe like a couple of months at a time before someone would ask me to do a presentation for a customer. Um, I do multiples a week now. We're looking at RFPs um, and there is a huge number of questions related to ESG sustainability performance. And the weighting on that section has also changed. You know, before it was kind of a make sure you fill that in. Now it's a make sure you fill that in because it's got 10% or it's got 40% weight to the decision-making that's happening. So it's absolutely changing in terms of, as Mike said, everyone is having to figure out how to do this and how to do this quickly. And now there's kind of a scramble, right? Because there is a need to have more people who understand more of the details and the nuances of how all these things connect together. But the the number of questions are going up and they're going up very quickly. And, you know, I think it comes by probably for both of you, it requires every organization to really understand, yes, there are broad categories of topics, right, within the ESG space around the environment of which climate is a key factor, but not the only factor, right? There's water, there's waste, and so forth. There's DE&I, both internally, but how you're engaged in the community and, um, and so forth. But it's really looking at in your category, what are the factors that are most relevant, not to just your talent, which may be across all aspects of DEI, but what are those issues about your fundamental core business and how you design, manufacture, package, ship, service the products and solutions that you sell? And it's really getting into that level of understanding. And that seems to be where customers and investors are very focused. Would you agree? I, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things, and I, I had this discussion earlier this week, um, our new head of operations was in town and you know, doing some really light onboarding framing conversations. And he was asking, well, what about water? And what's really great is for us, you know, we look at frameworks like WRI and you look at water tables, water maps, what are water stress regions? 
For us, we have one location that is not a heavy water user in a water stressed region. So water is not necessarily the most important topic for us. We're going to make sure that we're working to decrease our usage and to be more efficient with water usage, but that's not going to be the main topic. We are going to spend time focusing on things like green chemistry or recycling solutions uh, for single-use plastics that are used in biopharma manufacturing. But I think that ability to be very clear about where you're going to have impact rather than trying to boil the ocean, because this ocean, unfortunately, mm -hmm. is everything. And that's the tough part. You do need to be very clear and you need to understand what your stakeholders also expect of you. I think that's you know, another best practice is getting feedback from you know, investors, getting feedback from employees, getting feedback from customers about what matters to them in relation to your business, which again then gives you the roadmap to say, how do I focus in on those key issues and make sure that they're marquee, right? Like they yeah. are part of it, but then simultaneously making sure that you're keeping the rest of the house in order and you don't have issues creep up in places that really maybe shouldn't be uh, necessarily detracting a lot of your time because we all have limited time to try to do all of this. But I think absolutely, you know, for, each brand, it's going to be slightly different. If you are Tiffany's, right, you're thinking about mining and what does that look like? And what's the ethical treatment of labor look like your supply chain? That's not something that we, you know, we're spending time thinking about because we don't have exposure to that in that way, right? So I think it is absolutely true that you have to be very mindful and very clear about those key issues and not back away from them because they're the first ones that, you know, as Mike said, I think investors here are increasingly savvy and smart about where the risks lie. And they're asking those questions as they should be, which is a great form, like I said, another form of accountability for companies to keep driving progress in this space. Yeah, I think that's well said. Mike, I would love to get your perspective on the S and ESG. Because it's really, you know, many have said it's been overlooked. It was like the ugly step sibling of E and G, um, but it was put on sharp focus during the pandemic. And some people talk about it in the context of social value, societal value, shared value, stakeholder value. I'm wondering in the conversations that you have, because you're in this day in, day out, what is the prevailing definition on the part of the, the investor community, how are they thinking about the S? Say the <laughs> investor community as if they're one thing with one opinion. I mean, by definition, they all have two opinions on every single stock. Um, <laughs> so I, I, have a, I have a slightly different view on the fact that the S has been the ignored factor, because I think social issues have been incorporated into the way companies do business for decades, centuries and indeed incorporated into regulation and into the fundamental fabric of businesses and markets. So in actual fact, the reason that E received a higher focus was actually because it wasn't receiving the focus from other areas of society. I think if you're a healthcare company, or conversely, if you're a tobacco company, or if you're a business with any employees, you've always looked at the S, a whole range of sort of S factors. I think what has come about over the last few years uh, is a renewed focus in some markets on DEI issues, as you say. Absolutely, that's become mm -hmm. a very prevalent issue in some markets, not so much in others. That's something that a global perspective helps you understand. And I'm sure a number of your listeners will know that the operating in global brands, you get different priorities in different markets, and obviously public health. 
um, and the implications for the public at large, for employees, customers, also was an issue which uh, sort of shot to prominence. I actually think investors have a pretty good framework for considering social issues and that these newer issues have just slotted into that framework quite well. So the question we always encourage investors to ask and companies to communicate on is taking each of your stakeholder groups in turn, your customers, your employees, your communities, your suppliers, etc. Ask yourself, is this company managing the relationship with this stakeholder for the long term as well as for the short term? And that's a question that works with any stakeholder group over any period of time, over any social issue. Mm -hmm. I think once you have that framework in place, investors say, okay, health, this is an issue that relates to communities and suppliers and to employees. Are we making sure that the way we deal with health for these people works for the long term and our long term relationship with this customer as well as for the short term? The other thing to say in this context, and it's hugely important, I think particularly important for your audience, is that we often talk about environmental, social, corporate governance issues as if they're all about managing downside risk. Now, as Jeffrey knows, and there's a number of other companies mm -hmm. providing solutions to environmental and uh, social problems recognized, in actual fact, there's upside opportunity. There's absolutely, and, and this is obviously a key part of developing brands and growing brands, et cetera, being able to, to create and retain that brand capital. So I think in this social space, one of the things that we've seen is as companies articulate purpose, what they're really doing is they're capturing that upside social value and hopefully being able to contribute communicate that back to investors as well as managing the downside risk and i'm going to jump in on this one linda because i can't agree more what mike said is like music to my ears uh, this has been kind of the thesis of my work since i started this you know 13 years ago which was if we're sitting here talking about risk mitigation we're talking about the wrong thing you know that's a that's part of the calculation, but if that's your main goal is risk mitigation, I don't I think you've missed it. And really, that upside opportunity where you can transform processes, business, and connect that to what customers are looking for in ways that mitigate your impact. That's where it's really interesting, and I think this becomes a really powerful tool for brands for businesses to just transform what they're doing. I think another thing back to the original question you said about the S component, I think one of the tough parts about S is that it doesn't have a clear definition. It's not like you can measure it like you can CO2. You know, we're very clear in the, the conversation is coalesced around what has happened at COP25 and what we need to be aiming for. But when you get to S, good luck. It is a of lots of different things that are inconsistent between different businesses, different brands. And so therefore it becomes more challenging to understand what am I actually trying to accomplish and what does success look like? I think when you are not able, you know, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier about simplification. When you're not able to boil this down into something that people can just grab and run and get, it becomes tougher, I think, for this area to become a clear driving force forward about what are we trying to accomplish and how do we do it? You know, when we think about the S, we're also thinking about things like science education, right? And getting our people out, helping to get access to children who don't have access to high quality science education. That's not really captured anywhere in terms of a 
like an S metric, right? But it 100% is. And I would argue one of the most valuable ways that we can actually contribute is by modeling DE&I through those efforts and showcasing underrepresented scientists to these students who can use that benefit of seeing someone who looks like them doing a career that they didn't think was possible because they hadn't had the model. So I, I use that as one example, just to showcase the, I would say the challenges and the opportunities within the S space of redefining what that's going to mean and how do we use it as a defining character of how we drive our businesses and you know make them more inclusive, make them more thoughtful, ethical, et cetera. Uh, I think you you both raised really good points. And I know the World Economic Forum has introduced a, a set of metrics for measuring stakeholder capitalism with a huge focus on different aspects of the S to drive some of that consistency. But they also sort of point out, and, and Mike, you made the point, that some of the S factors in particular have cultural nuances. And so you always have to look at them in the context of the markets that you're talking about to be thoughtful and respectful of where different issues, how they take shape in the different markets in in which you operate. You know, Mike, you also touched on H, health. And it's been interesting because there was an article in Fortune a few weeks ago questioning whether H should be added to ESG. Um, And it was in the context of employee health and well-being because of that impact on business productivity and and so forth. But it sounds like from many perspectives, the H and sort of employee health and well-being as public health too, are both already within the sphere of S, depending on how an investor or a brand sort of is looking at that. I think so. I mean, I feel... I feel a bit hypocritical saying that we can't extend the ESG initialism, given that I've already extended it by three initials. But I feel very comfortable that um, H or health sits under social or indeed, as I think that article makes, under economic. Mm-hmm. You could argue that it's an economic. Well, fine. And I, in actual fact, I think one of the challenges we face is getting we need the buckets in order to make issues digestible. But at the same time, we don't need to be slaves to the buckets. There are a number of points of overlap and inequality and energy consumption are an absolutely classic one in Europe at the moment, where the S and the E overlap and sometimes fight with each other around the concept of a just transition. So I don't think we need to be slaves to the buckets, but I'm very happy to put H into whichever bucket the author of that article would prefer it to go into. No, I, I agree. I just, I, you know, it's, I think everyone is trying to digest, right, everything that has happened, you know, some, and very often, I think, you know, when you think of DE&I, it's, it's time for our annual report, right, or analysis of diversity, and everyone focuses on that. And then, you know, it becomes part of the always on sort of consciousness. But I think today we're seeing that these issues are morphing and evolving in in very different ways. And there's heightened sensitivity and also expectation that if there's an issue that happens, you know, whether it is, as, as we saw with the murder of George Floyd or another point, that there's an expectation of 
companies will respond. Employees are looking for their employers, their companies to engage, and companies have to be ready to engage on a whole range of social issues, whether it's around abortion rights or voting rights, issues of, of systemic inequity. And something that happens in one country can take on global import in this day and age. And that's a new muscle that companies have to build. Wouldn't you agree, Jeffrey? Absolutely. You look at you know a recent example with Ukraine. You know, there was a intense global interest from our employees to get involved in some way and to also have the company see that. Well, you know, we had to figure out how do you throw up matching frameworks that can accept all of these different things, recognize where the money is going to validate it, and then, you know, get the company then to follow through with a match, right? But that is an expectation that the company or that the employees have. And you can't fall down in those moments, right? It was such a global and visible component, unfortunately, what happens has happening. And people want to see action. They want to see companies who have been successful, who are benefiting from strong business models to contribute in ways that show that they recognize this and they recognize the impact it has on employees from mental health, from you know our companies headquartered in Europe. And so there's just a whole different geopolitical feeling now for what felt like a sense of security in Europe, which has now changed. And, and I think that's where you see you have to be able to respond quickly. You the, the days of letting that go on for weeks and weeks and weeks without being able to do something, it just, it's not acceptable in the eyes of our employees because we are on an it's kind of a always on and instant gratification kind of model. And so we need to adjust to adapt in certain circumstances to be able to respond to that. Well, and as you said, employees are holding their employers accountable. And so when you you have a clear mission and set of values and a situation comes up, whether it's Ukraine or, or in another area, your employees are saying, okay, are we going to live our values and are looking for, again, it's an opportunity to demonstrate, yes, we are going to live our values and follow through on what we've said. And so, and, and that is not backing off. I mean, it's just becoming more and more important. And it's, a, it's such a great point because I think now with the focus that has been put on values at companies, you are now put in a situation as leaders within the companies to say, okay, we're espousing them all the time. When the time comes to demonstrate them in action, it's kind of like put up or shut up. And so the paradigm on that has changed where, you know, before maybe organizations weren't so values driven. Now it is kind of a requirement because that's what employees are looking for. And now you actually have to put them into action. They can't just be words on a wall. And these are the moments where you, you either prove that you mean it or that employees can see very quickly that that is just really kind of window dressing. And so it becomes a very important moment to be able to live up to what you're saying. Such a great point. Mike, any thoughts before we go to our final question? Oh, I mean, I know that having two Anglo-Americans on, you're supposed to be achieving adverse, we're supposed to warm to the adversarial challenge, but no, I agree entirely with Jeffrey. <laughs> Well, as we bring this roundtable to a close, I guess I'd like to ask each of you, is there one piece of advice or words of wisdom you would offer to our listeners about 
how they should prioritize or communicate about ESG issues to their stakeholders, you know, whether investors, employees, customers, community partners. One thing that that you would reflect on, particularly over the past two years. Jeffrey, may I start with you? Absolutely. I'm going to disobey the rules. I, I don't know if I can give you just one. Um, okay. I, I, I will say guiding principles for me are always data and transparency as an anchor, followed by simplification. Uh, and I think for communicators, you have to figure out how you simplify this because it is complex. There's a lot of data and detail, but you need to be guided by data and transparency as your guiding light, but use that to then simplify how you're talking about it and really think about what matters and use that as your guiding point. I mean, it's very simple. This isn't, you know, nothing new there, but I think it bears repeating. And, you know, sometimes we we try to get fancy. This is one of those times where simple, simple is going to be your friend. Great point. And Mike? Yeah, could I have could I have two as well? I think if of you're course. communicating to in, <laughs> if you're communicating to investors, you have to bring your investor relations officers into the picture. They have to run this process. They have to involve. They're the only ones with the skill sets, the ability to manage opportunity, identify investors, manage risks um, as part of this communications process. But then the second thing for communications professionals is I, I think there's often a mistake in thinking of communications as being an outbound activity. From an investor's point of view, we very much want to hear the inbound that communications can bring. So people who are responsible for brands, responsible for customer relationships, if you're sensing a change in your customer base based on preferences for climate awareness or DE&I issues, then investors need to hear that back from you as communications professionals so that we can judge this company is or isn't aware of the brand risks and opportunities available to it. Given the heavy components of a company's valuation that is now attributed to brands, that sort of listening exercise and listening to communications professionals is something which I think investors could really benefit from as these communications, as these issues become more complex. Terrific point. Mike, Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope that we can invite you back at some future point to discuss how all of these issues continue to evolve. Thank you so much. Thanks, Linda. Now I'm here with Amy Takis, Senior Vice President of Red Havas Health, and we're going to do the Red Questionnaire together. For any new listeners getting caught up with us, the Red Questionnaire is where we ask the same questions to different guests to understand what inspires them, makes them tick, and what's grabbing their attention right now. So with that, Amy, hello, how are you today? Hello, I am so happy and excited to be here. Well, you know, I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Um, it's great to have a friend and colleague on the on the pod and to get to know you on a more personal level. What we're going to do is just run through a bunch of questions and they're really just to get to know you better, understand what makes you tick and really what's got your focus right now. How's that sound? Uh, let's do this. I'm, I okay. am on board. Let's go. All right. Question number one. How would you describe your job to a child? Oh my goodness. PR is all about connecting with people to tell stories. And the people that I work with are usually people who are sick and want to tell their stories so others don't get sick. Or if they do, they can tell them about a new medicine. I'm using my, my child voice, if you haven't noticed. And, and working with the media is like 
giving those people a really big microphone to tell their really important stories. This microphone is super loud and makes the story spread really far. And how we know that the PR worked <laughs> is by counting how many people we reach. What do you think about that, Nance? I absolutely love that. <laughs> and, and you know what? It always feels better to know like that there's meaning behind the work and, and the work that yeah. you're doing in the health space now more than ever, it really is so integral, the work that you and, and your team are doing. So that has to feel good and make the job a lot easier to do. Every single day. And, you know, we are so proud of the work that we do. And, you know, we see it when we pass a big milestone in healthcare um, and our team just gets so excited and our clients are excited and see, see the news in the media. And it's just, it's just really, really good stuff. That's a great return on investment. I love that. <laughs> yes, that is the ROI for sure. That's right. That's right. Well, and that's a great segue because through all of that hard work, right? Hopefully you and your team, you take the time off to recharge and give you that work-life balance. So that leads us into question number two. Tell me your favorite place that you've ever traveled to and why. Oh, this one is easy. Um, I would say London, England, because I've traveled there in my early 20s as a college student. And when I left, I was generally confused about my direction in life. And I was feeling really down and just kind of dark. That trip sparked so much joy and exploration, which is why I think travel is just what our souls need when we're feeling down. I came back so filled with hope for the future. And I go back to London really often, as often as I can. And I can actually recapture that feeling, that feeling of elation every single time, which is why it's my favorite place. And it doesn't happen everywhere I go. I don't get that feeling of like everything kind of falling off, you know, and, and just feeling like, ah, I can take a big, big, huge breath. So London, London gets it. <laughs> now, since this is a podcast, no one else can see my face right now and why I'm lighting up. I just booked a trip to London. Okay, we um, have to talk. We have to talk. I have <laughs> been there before, but it's been quite some time, but I feel like I can learn and get some tips from you. So oh. definitely hit you up about that as, as I get ready to go on my trip. As you should. Okay, next one. Tell us what's your favorite blog or podcast? Okay, I love everything by Mel Robbins. Um, she's the author of the five second rule and the high five habit. And she's definitely what we all need to hear right now. All of her lifestyle tips are grounded in science. So that's the healthcare communications professional in me. What I love, one of the things I love about her is she says, hesitation is the kiss of death. You might hesitate for just a nanosecond, but that's all it takes. So think about like, you know, trying to get out of bed in the morning for a workout. That one small hesitation triggers a mental system that's designed to stop you, and it happens in less than five seconds. So she believes that the moment you have an instinct to act on a goal, whatever it is, you must, like doing this podcast, <laughs> you must physically move within five seconds, so respond quickly, or your brain will stop you. So it sounds like five, four, three, two, one, go. And I can't tell you how many times I've done this, and it's worked, and I'm obsessed. That is a brilliant piece of advice, along with sharing, you know, a great reference for people to go and read up or listen to. So we'll be sure to put some of that content into show notes for people to go back and refer to. Okay, Amy, so tell us the headline that's grabbing your attention right now. If we're to read up on anything this month, what should that be? Okay, 
it's all about stem cell research. I read a BBC article that researchers have rejuvenated a 53-year-old woman's skin cells so that they are equivalent to a 23-year-old. We were just talking about beauty before we kicked off the show, Nance, right? Yes. <laughs> so there are scientists in Cambridge that believe that they can do the same thing with other tissues in the body. And the reason I think this is so cool is that it's not just about aging, although that's kind of amazing, right? Um, yeah. The eventual aim is to develop treatments for age-related diseases like diabetes and heart disease and neurological disorders. Um, and this is the type of research that will literally keep people healthier for longer. Although there's a downside, we'll have to wait because the research, although it was published data, it was in extremely early phases. But mm -hmm. I feel like if there's anything that can give you hope. <laughs> you took that. the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly what I was thinking, that this is something to give us you know, hope for and, and something to look ahead to and invest in and, and to understand more. We'll want to get that from you, too, so we can put that article into um, yes. our show notes for everybody so they can read for that as sure. well. Brilliant. Well, that takes us to our last question already, Amy. Come on, tell me, what's your guilty pleasure? Okay, well, I don't know what this says about me, but I can cuddle up at night with my mini poodle, a giant blanket with all the lights out, just me alone, and watch back-to-back -back shows about murder. You name it, like crime shows, horror movies, profiles about serial killers, just me sitting there all zenned out, in my happy place, watching shows about people getting murdered. Um, and let's please not analyze it. But uh, the crime shows got me. They just got me. I'm hooked. And they make yeah. so many of them. There's there so are. many options. Well, because there's <laughs> legions of us out there that I think it all started um, with Law and Order. And then yeah. from there, it's it's just sort of <laughs> evolved and, and expanded from there. Is there one particular that you always go to? Oh my goodness. I can never remember the name of names of any of them, but it's yeah. like uh, profiles of a serial killer. I mean, I literally watched an entire five segment docuseries on John Wayne Gacy the other night, like just like back to back to back alone in the dark, <laughs> just like mesmerized. And he was like, on, you know, on screen talking. It's just, uh, it's bananas. I don't know. Why and then you I? sleep like a baby. This yeah. Then I go right to bed. And I set my alarm. <laughs> I mean, I think I've desensitized, but that that's it. That's the guilty pleasure. Well, it's a great one. Um, and this was a great conversation. I'm so glad to have had you on the Red Questionnaire. Thanks so much for your time, Amy. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. You can subscribe to the show using your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. And don't forget to rate and review today's show to let us know how we're doing. We hope you'll join us again for more of the latest communications, insights, and trends from the team at Red Havas.